It's Monday, June 7th, and this is the Option Key Webcast. This is the Option Key Webcast. What's up on Google? PC. Trev, you got Vista 64 yet? His router's piece of garbage on. That's probably the hyper-threading kicking in and the 20% faster per core. GTX 280? Google Docs. Not fun. Yeah, well, you know, you understand where Microsoft's trying to come from, where they're trying to change the file edit view menu. My money's going to be on, no, you will not have a problem. And, uh, yeah, I've had nothing but good experiences with it. Very big mistake if it wasn't backwards compatible because, I mean, they got harassed about Vista. Well, in the business world, if your apps don't work, you don't switch. Because the thing here is, I mean, the apps are backwards compatible. Yeah, but we heard this all before. You know what? I honestly wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it lasted, you know, for five years, and I bet you... So yours will be better right now for rendering, but the i7s will be faster. I have here with me today Professor Michael Geist from the University of Ottawa. He is the university's research chair in internet and e-commerce law. Professor Geist, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Professor Geist, uh, I had a look at the uh, bill as you've been tweeting uh, things out. Mm-hmm. Um, with the digital lock provision, what do you think that means for regular users such as myself or my wife or parents, uh, regular person out there that goes and buys a DVD and wants to put it on their iPod? Well, I think those users have been told by, by the government that that sort of activity typically won't be permitted. And I think that runs counter both to the message that the government was putting forward because it really emphasized that it was modernizing the law and hoping to ensure that it reflected a lot of common activities. Um, And also talking about the fact that there was going to be backup copy provisions in there, format shifting and time shifting provisions in there, the sorts of things that I think many Canadian consumers uh, take for granted and frankly expect when they purchase um, digital media that they'll have have those sorts of rights built in. Um, the legislation gives and takes in that regard. So on the one hand, it gives and, and does establish new provisions on time shifting, format shifting, backup copies, and the like. Uh, but just as soon as you get it, they in many respects get taken away because there are provisions in there that say all of those new rights are subject to or trumped by the presence of a digital lock. So once you're using digital media that has a digital lock on it, the legality of those activities uh, is called into question. Uh, I also uh, read uh, part of it where it said that software for doing backups of DVDs and those kind of devices will not be permitted to be sold here in Canada the way the law is currently written. That's right, and that, that's something we saw in C61. It's not something that was in the earlier bill, the Liberal Bill, C60, um, and isn't something that's strictly required under WIPO, but is there. And it is that it is, it will become illegal to market, distribute, or sell devices that can be used to circumvent, i.e. software programs that can be used to do that. Uh, and that raises a, a, a really significant issue, and I'm glad you brought it up, because there have been a number of people out there that have, have started to argue that the digital lock provisions aren't that bad, that there are a number of exceptions in there on the digital lock side, seeks to distinguish between accessing content and copying content, and so that people uh, ought not to fear the 
the digital the, the digital lock provisions. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think that the, trying to distinguish between access and and use locks is largely a, distinct, a distinction without a difference with respect to most digital rights management today. Uh, but even more, um, your point is exactly right. The distribution, marketing, sale of the very programs that would be needed to exercise those rights will be banned under this law. Um, and so the notion that somehow there's still where it's anything goes, or at least where um, you can continue to act in a lawful fashion, isn't true to the extent to which you need to be able to actually access uh, these sorts of programs because someone who tries to distribute or make available those programs faces very real liability. Um, I'm just curious because a lot of this copying sounds to me that basically, you know, we used to have the, we still have the analog hole, but we use that analog hole with regards to VCRs. I mean, people would record their programs, program VCRs, record it, and they would record copies for their friends, even though they weren't supposed to. Um, so why are they cracking down now when they should have cracked down then if they were even going to do this? Well, um, you raise a couple of good points. First, on the issue of the analog hole, you're right. There is still an analog hole in there, and in fact, the movie industry has tried to argue that that provides a perfectly acceptable alternative. People can simply camcord versions of their own DVDs and use those clips uh, as the basis of the kind of clips they want. I mean, this strikes me as uh, patently absurd for anyone that's trying to establish a law that's forward-looking um, because it's precisely the opposite. They let's use some old technologies as a mechanism to allow for the sort of activity that's readily available on, on just about any desktop today and simply doesn't make a whole lot of sense if what we're trying to do is have a technology-neutral, forward-looking approach with respect to the legislation. As for, as for why now, uh, I mean, I think this legislation is why now, largely because we're facing a huge amount of U.S. pressure on this particular issue, on the digital lock issue. Um, obviously, there have been a couple of bills that have been introduced and have died on the order paper that sought to address it, uh, C-60, the liberal bill, and C-61, the, new, the, the earlier conservative bill. Um, and I don't think it's a big surprise that these kinds of provisions are back again. I think we had a, had a strong sense that this was going to be the case. Um, and, you know, I think what, what makes the approach particularly unfortunate is that there is a compromised position. You know, I don't see a lot of people, there are some, but I don't see a lot of people saying no to locks altogether. Uh, the idea that we would legislate protection from digital rights management rather than for it. Um, although I think a good case can be made that there are certain abuses out there and that protection from those uh, abuses would make a whole lot of sense. But that's not really even where the discussion is. The discussion is simply, isn't there a way to strike a reasonable balance between, on the one hand, um, a desire of some businesses to use these technologies as the source of their business, as, a, as part of their business model, and have legal protection for that, and at the same time maintain the existing copyright balance. And I think there is such a solution. I think an approach that would um, ensure that those that circumvent for lawful purposes, they're not looking to make a thousand copies and sell it on the street corner, they're looking to do things that our law says is perfectly legal, uh, that ought to be preserved. And there's language that would allow us to do that. And I think in the process, meet the, meet the standards that are set out in the treaty, provide the legal protections for the businesses that want it, but at the same time maintain the copyright balance in a way that uh, this current bill doesn't. Um, I have uh, 
email here from uh, Angelica, uh, and she was uh, asking me to explain the bill in less technical terms, but I guess uh, the blog post that I wrote uh, was similar to yours. It was just kind of highlighting the pros and cons of the uh, bill, but essentially I just said that everything good in the bill, uh, with the exception of the uh, fines, which have been reduced for non-commercial users, which is a good thing. They're still too high, but it's still a good thing. Uh, Essentially... uh, negates everything that is good in the bill. Would you say that's uh, a fair assessment? Well, I, I, I certainly think that the digital lock provisions create, you know, create a situation where it feels like we're one step forward and two steps back. Uh, I think it's, it's, I think you have to give credit where credit is due, and so I'm going to try to do that. I think that there are some good provisions in this bill. I think um, the government has tried to adopt a bit of a compromise on a range of different issues, and uh, you know, I think it's striking to see the attempts uh, to uh, the attempts that they I think have tried to make on the issue of compromising on fair dealing, on um, the statutory damages provisions that you referenced a moment ago, on the role of internet intermediaries such as ISPs or large websites. You know, I think that. On all of those issues, there was a spectrum of possibilities um, from those looking for greater flexibility, let's say, on fair dealing to those that were looking for no additional changes at all. Um, And on those issues, I think there was a genuine attempt to try to strike a compromise, one that doesn't meet everybody's requests, um, but goes partway to meeting them. And and the compromise that I think they've struck is actually a pretty good one on those issues. Uh, The problem... Uh, is, as you note, that once you take the position that the imposition of a digital lock has the effect of trumping all of these other rights, makes a huge, uh, it's a huge impact. And it's one that really does undo so much of the good that you find in the legislation. Um, with regards to that digital lock, uh, could this just be a politic game being played to have the government show that they're willing to cooperate with opposition parties that this could end up being where um say that the assumption when you break the digital lock is that it's not illegal uh when you do that uh that they have to prove somehow that you made a thousand copies and sold them on the street um do you think if the parties all came together and changed that so that the intent of breaking the digital lock is not at, for an illegal purpose. Uh, do you think that would go long ways to fixing this copyright bill? I think it does. I, you know, it's it's not that it's perfect. Uh, in the next few days, I'm going to be posting a fair amount on the digital lock issue. And I think there's a lot of different exceptions that I would love to see in there, uh, and a lot of changes I'd like to see in there, but. Um, you know, I guess I suppose again in the spirit of compromise, um, if we were to try to say, well, what is the minimum kind of compromise position uh, that we could implement that would have the effect of at least preserving some of that balance, meeting the international standards, providing the legal protection for businesses, all the sorts of things that the government's trying to achieve, I think that is that compromise position, one that says at a minimum, um, people ought to still be able to circumvent for lawful purposes, um, and. 
from there, we get into a range of other things that I think would actually significantly enhance and, and sort of flesh out that kind of balance. Things like identifying authorized circumventors, recognizing that the, the average Canadian, many Canadians, don't know how to circumvent even if you say they have the right to do it. Um, and so if we can identify some trusted parties like librarians, um, archivists, others who uh, are trusted by people on both sides, um, who could, in the appropriate circumstances, circumvent on behalf of a user who's got the right to do it, uh, I think that would make a lot of difference. It's a provision that New Zealand has put into place and I think would make a lot of sense here. Um, I think we have to rethink the approach on devices themselves because I think it's very difficult to say on the one hand you've got a right to circumvent, but on the other hand the distribution of the devices themselves uh, isn't permitted. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think that there are uh, any number of fixes that are there, but from, for me I guess the starting point compromise fix uh, is one that says you ought to be able to circumvent for lawful purposes. Well, I have to admit that this bill is surprisingly much better than what I was expecting, as you uh, directed me in a uh, tweet one time. Uh, but uh, as you said, there's still a lot of work to do. And I just wonder if, uh, you know, the if things don't get fixed, if this is just a prelude to, uh, you know, implementations into the ACTA, uh, such as the three strikes and that kind of thing. Like, uh, domestically, we may not have a three strikes law, but then if we adopt the ACTA as it's currently written, if I understand it correctly, uh, there's a three, like, uh, three strikes uh, provision there, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Uh, do you have any comment for that? I don't think we're going to see... I, well, ACTA, and I'm glad you raised that as well. I actually don't... At the moment, it doesn't look like we, we see provisions directly dealing with ACTA um, in on three strikes within ACTA. And in fact, the, the, the Heritage Minister, James Moore, um, was pretty unequivocal, I thought, helpfully so, um, on, on this issue of three strikes when discussing it at the press conference when the bill was introduced. He made clear that uh, the government of Canada has rejected that approach. I think that's actually... Uh, I'm glad that they've taken that particular position. Um, but the broader context that you raise, both with ACTA as well as with CETA, the Canada-European Union Trade Agreement, is, is something that we, we can't overlook um, because it's not just the domestic reforms that, are, that we're seeing have an impact, but it's also these two trade agreements, these treaties that are being negotiated that could have an enormous impact on what domestic copyright, Canadian copyright law looks like. Yeah, because they could pass this domestically now and then pass these other treaties and then have to change the domestic law later. That's possible, but I think it makes it difficult. I think, frankly, once you've, once you've passed something, knowing, knowing how hard it's been to get something passed in the first place, um, there's re you know, it's, it's not like copyright law changes every other month in Canada, obviously. So, um, yes, there would be pressure within ACTA to make further changes based at least on the current ACTA draft. Not everything within ACTA is consistent with, with everything that we saw in C32. Um, but at the same time, uh, that may ultimately prove helpful. It, it, drives, dry, it draws a little bit of a line in the sand to say this is where Canadian law stands. And given that we've just made those changes, one would hope that there's the ability to actually take that as a strong position and say this is, you know, this is as far as we're willing to go. Um, and rather than take the approach that ACTA is going to further change Canadian law, take the position that Canada simply won't 
participate or won't won't become a signatory to ACTA. Professor Geis, um, with regards to the new uh, copyright legislation, what kind of things does the government need to do to make this a good bill for consumers? If you can get kind of more of a generic uh, specification for that. Well, as, as we were talking about, I think the starting point um, is simply to ensure that those that circumvent, cir- get around, pick a digital lock, such as region coding on a DVD, the locks that are found on things like electronic books, uh, are permitted to have that circumvention, permitted to pick that digital lock where they do so for legal purposes. Um, and so what we would do is seek to distinguish between the person let's say, that picks the digital lock on a DVD for the purposes of selling a 1,000 copies on a street corner. That clearly should be infringement, and the law should be able to target that. But at the same time, we also need to ensure that those that are trying to circumvent or those those that seek to circumvent for legal purposes, for something that's permitted by law, continue to have the right to do so. That's not, in a sense, changing anything. That's basically saying that the balance that exists today continues to exist even with protections for uh, digital locks, for digital rights management. So to give you an example, the government made a fair amount last week uh, about the fact that there will be a new exception for cell phones and the ability for people to unlock a cell phone if they seek to uh, move from one carrier to another, subject to, of course, the contracts that they have with their carrier. Now, it's important to recognize that's actually not, that's actually not anything new. It's already the law in Canada that Canada consumers have the right uh, once, uh, typically uh, once contract is over, but they have the right to circumvent the locks that would try to keep someone bound with their cell phone to a particular carrier to unlock it and thereby move to another carrier. That's the law today. Uh, the exception that they've established would maintain that um, with res- once this bill becomes law, because otherwise there was a risk that that would become an act of infringement. I guess what I'm saying here is that the same approach that they took on cell phones uh, ought to be true for any number of different kinds of devices and content. The fact that today you have the right to circumvent in other areas shouldn't disappear um, with this new law. In fact, if you've got a legal right to circumvent, uh, that should continue to exist. Um, And I understand that there have been calls for... Uh, from the media companies, uh, not right now uh, here in Canada, but in the United States for when people use uh, ringtone, song ringtones uh, that, uh, as you know, uh, the cell phone tracks in a log file, uh, number of calls received and calls sent um, for performance royalties for those kind of things. Uh, do you see uh, those kind of things changing in the future? Uh, possibly uh, performance rights for, uh, well, performance fees for cell phones and other digital content in the future? It's certainly, that's certainly a possibility. You know, there's some of those issues have been issues that have been before the Copyright Board. Um, and I do think that, you know, the bill tries to address uh, some of those sorts of issues, new exceptions for um, education on the one hand, uh, new performers' rights on the other. Uh, and so um, there are elements in there that, that will see some fees potentially disappear. 
uh, let's say in the context of fees broadcasters pay right now, uh, for what's known as shifting. Um, they created an ephemeral exception, shifting, say, music from a CD onto a hard drive where they later play the music off the hard drive. That has changed or would change under this bill. So there are places where fees that are currently paid uh, might cease. There are also places where there may be new payments forthcoming along the lines of um, new rights for photographers, new rights for performers. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, I suppose, in that regard. I'm not very familiar with the upgraded for the rights for photographers and other performers and that kind of thing. Um, could you be a little more clear on the kinds of changes that are coming up for those uh, industries? Yeah, sure. Why don't we talk about the, the photographer one in particular? Uh, photographers have been looking for changes for a long time. And it has to do with who owns the copyright or holds the copyright in commissioned photographs. Uh, the idea at the moment, a lot at the moment in Canada, is that if you commission a photographer, let's say um, you're having a wedding and you commission a photographer to take the photographs, you as the commissioner of those photographs hold the copyright. Uh, now, frankly, that doesn't strike me as all that unreasonable, but um, photographers have long argued that they ought to be the copyright holder in those works um, and that, of course, a user can get a license in that, but it's the photographer that ultimately holds the, hold the copyright. Uh, and in fact, that's a change that the government has proposed in this bill. Hmm. Interesting. I got a couple of people that are photographers, and yeah, it's uh, interesting. I'll have to get their opinions on uh, that. Um, and I guess just uh, for final summary, um, so do you feel that Canadians should still be writing their MPs about this digital lock provision? Uh, I've been uh, urging uh, people to still continue to write their MP about this. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's still necessary? Absolutely. Uh, in many ways, more necessary now than ever before. Uh, and I think it's necessary now to write to their members of parliament, to write to the ministers, um, both to express support for the part that the elements in the bill that they like, because recognize that, that some of the progress that was made on some of these issues will face an enormous amount of pressure from those that don't like it to roll it back or eliminate it altogether. Um, and so just because it's in the bill now doesn't mean it's going to stay in the bill. And so I think it's absolutely essential that Canadians that, that like some of the reforms, let's say, on fair dealing, uh, ensure that their voice is heard. Otherwise, I, I think there's every reason to believe they risk losing uh, some of those gains. Uh, at the same time, it's also just as critical to speak out against the digital lock provisions. I think that we have seen um, some early indications that there is a willingness on the part of the government to listen to proposed amendments. In fact, they've said exactly that. They're open to friendly amendments. Uh, and so this is one area where um, I'm hopeful that this is not cast in stone yet. Uh, and there's reason to believe that if people come forward with, uh, you know, reasonable compromise-type positions, the government and the opposition parties may well be listening. Uh, but that's only going to happen if Canadians speak out. Well, for those of you interested in uh, writing your MP, I have a form letter on my website, optionkey.ca, and feel free to take it, copy it, change it, and send that off to your MP. I also recommend sending it off to the Leader of the Opposition and uh, the NDP industry minister and the liberal industry minister as long along with james moore and tony clement the current industry minister um anyone there that i missed 
They got them all. They're not the opposition party members. Are not industry ministers. They're industry critics. Critics. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's um, worth noting that you've got. I mean, the most important by far is your local MP. Uh, but beyond that, certainly the ministers and the the opposition leaders and the opposition critics are are worth uh, targeting as well, ensuring that your voice is heard. And it's worth noting that um, emails are good, but letters are better. Um, and there is no postage required to send letters to your elected representatives. So even if you send out an email, print it out, put it in an envelope, no postage required. All right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Geis. It was very enlightening. Uh, it's Great. good to know a lot of things. Uh, it's very important to get straight uh, these kind of things. That way then uh, we remain well informed about what's actually happening and not the old rumors and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Professor Guys. This is the Object Key webcast. Stuff on Google. PC. Fred, you got Vista 64 yet? His router's piece of garbage on. That's probably the hyper threading kicking in and the 20% faster per core. GTX 280. Google Docs. Not fun. Yeah, well, you know, you understand where Microsoft's trying to come from, where they're trying to change the file edit view menu. My money's going to be on, no, you will not have a problem. And, uh, yeah, I've had nothing but good experiences with it. Very big mistake if it wasn't backwards compatible because, I mean, they got harassed about Vista. Well, in the business world, if your apps don't work, you don't switch. Because the thing here is, I mean, the apps are backwards compatible. Yeah, but we heard this all before. You know what? I honestly wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it lasted, you know, for five years, and I bet you... So yours will be better right now for rendering, but the i7s will be faster. Professor Michael Geis is the Canadian Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. And you can reach him at www.michaelgeist.ca and you can also follow him on Twitter at Michael Geist. This is the Object Key webcast. Stuff on Google. PC. Fred, you got Vista 64 yet? His router's piece of garbage on. That's probably the hyper threading kicking in and the 20% faster per core. GTX 280. Google Docs. Not fun. Yeah, well, you know, you understand where Microsoft's trying to come from, where they're trying to change the file edit view menu. My money's going to be on, no, you will not have a problem. Uh, yeah, I've had nothing but good experiences with it. Very big mistake if it wasn't backwards compatible because, I mean, they got harassed about Vista. Well, in the business world, if your apps don't work, you don't switch. Because the thing here is, I mean, the apps are backwards compatible. Yeah, but we heard this all before. You know what? I honestly wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it lasted, you know, for five years, and I bet you. So yours will be better right now for rendering, but the i7s will be faster.